Episode 271, COVID-19, A Surprise Billing Defense Strategy for Patients and Employers in the Middle of a Pandemic. Today, I speak with Al Lewis, Rachel Miner, David Contorno, and Doug Aldean. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I'm talking to Al Lewis from Quizify. This episode also guest stars Rachel Miner from Thrive Benefits, David Contorno from ePowered Benefits, and Doug Aldean, a healthcare attorney in Texas. This episode started out being about surprise billing in the emergency room and a potential defense strategy that patients and employees can use to protect themselves from egregious billing practices. Surprise bills are when a patient gets, in quotes, balance billed, for a sum above what their insurance carrier will pay, usually this transpires when an out-of-network provider somehow or another gets involved in their care. Usually the patient has no idea this happens until after the bill comes, the big bill in many cases, thus the surprise. But here's where surprise billing and COVID-19 connect. You might not have thought of this because you might know that patients who present in the ER with COVID-19 and then test positive are protected from surprise bills for the most part by the CARES Act. But there's a couple of wrinkles. What if the patient does not actually have COVID-19? Then whatever treatment they wind up getting in the notoriously expensive ER is business as usual. Here's another wrinkle. The cost of treatment for COVID-19 is not like it's capped. So even if an employee doesn't get a surprise bill, the self-insured employer or health plan might. And the CARES Act explicitly states that the employer plan is on the hook to pay for it. And one last wrinkle. Dealing with this pandemic, among other things, leaves about 0.0 chance that the national surprise billing legislation is going to happen this year. But it's not like kids have stopped running into the side of the pullout couch and needing stitches or drug overdoses or heart attacks have suddenly vanished. There was a news article just yesterday about a private equity-run ER in the Midwest continuing to dish out nasty surprise bills to their community of taxpayers at the exact same time that they were lobbying to get a piece of the federal bailout paid by taxpayers. Al Lewis and his team over at Quizify created this handy wallet card that patients or employees can use when they have the unfortunate experience of going to the ER themselves or with a loved one. It protects them from egregious surprise bills, thus its moniker, the Surprise Billing Defense Strategy. But nothing for nothing, this wallet card, this Surprise Billing Defense Strategy, also protects employers and health plans from these large bills in the age of COVID-19. Al Lewis and I start our conversation talking about a New York Times article that came out recently featuring Al, as well as myself, and chronicles my visit to an emergency room wherein I deployed the surprise billing defense strategy slash wallet card. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Al Lewis, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Well, thank you as usual for having me on, Stacey. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back. So, as you know, Al, I was in the New York Times recently. Really? Yeah. I'm going to assume that you were behind the reporter reaching out to me to discuss my emergency room experience and my endeavor to use the surprise billing strategy, which you devised with your Quizify team. But I got to say, it was funny when Julie Appleby, she's the reporter from Kaiser Health News, she sent me the link to the article. 
I was actually sitting on the sofa with my husband and I read the article and then I said to him, honey, I have some good news and some bad news. And they were both the same. (laughs) The good news is I'm in the New York Times. The bad news is you are too. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of forgot to mention that I told the entire world he had a panic attack and went to the emergency room. (laughs) Luckily, he didn't care. He said something about power to the people and then went back doing important things on his computer. Talk a little bit about surprise bills, just in case anybody has been out of the loop on this. You know, when somebody goes to the emergency room with a heart attack or a panic attack or a broken finger, what is the likelihood that they're going to wind up with some kind of balance bill that is more money than they have in their savings account? Like, what is the prevalence of this happening? Is it something that people should fear? Okay, so there's really two questions in there. There's what is the likelihood of finding a surprise on your, it's three. What is the likelihood of having a surprise on the bill? And what is the likelihood that it gets balance billed? And then what is the likelihood that it gets balance billed for some huge amount? The first question is, what is the likelihood of a surprise? And it's actually quite high, especially in the ER. There are going to be a lot of line items that you didn't know you have. All coronavirus admissions are going to be emergency admissions. All ER visits are going to be emergency ER visits. The large majority of people are going to have some kind of insurance where they don't notice. I mean, the employer's paying it. And what I've learned from employers is they tend not to notice if an employee doesn't bring it up. They might get a surprise bill for five or $10,000 for an ER visit. They don't even notice. It's just getting processed by their TPA or their ASO insurer. And it just happens. So if you talk to a large Fortune 500 company with a generous health benefit, they don't know from surprise bills. So that's thing number one, that they appear on a lot of situations, but oftentimes they don't get noticed. And the the statistic I saw, I mean, they're all over the map, but they are high numbers, like 47% of all emergency admissions and emergency visits have some kind of surprise in them or something like that. So that brings us to the second is, what are the odds of you getting billed for that? Well, if you have a high deductible plan that has has coinsurance instead of a copay, and or you haven't used up your deductible yet, you're going to be getting a bill. And it's the large majority of these surprise bills are in the you know, low to mid four figures. So it's really a pain and it is a financial stress for many people, but it's not the ones you read about in the newspaper. That brings us to the third, which is the ones you read about in the newspaper. They're the ones where people are getting five-figure bills for ER and six-figure bills for simple emergency hospitalizations for whatever reason, where if they are underinsured, as many people are, if you have like a high deductible plan or something, they're going to be on the hook, or, or if you're uninsured at all, they're going to be on the hook for a large chunk of that bill. Now, that's the stuff that gets people all bent out of shape as well it should. The likelihood of that is fairly low, you know, probably out of a thousand employees in a high deductible plan, I'm just guessing, maybe two to five will have that happen. But that still is a very large number when you think of all the effort that employers go through to avoid a diabetes admission or a heart attack admission, which are actually each lower probabilities than that. Onto the wallet card that you created, can you just describe Like if I was going to pull that out of my pocket and look at it, what does it look like and what does it say? What it says is I consent. There are two types of consent. 
there's the consent to treatment and there's the consent to being charged. Uh, you always want to sign the consent to treatment and then they have to treat you. The, the consent to being charged is you do not have to sign that thing. It shows up on a screen. You do not have to sign that. Basically, you can sign nothing. And we'll go through that step by step in a minute. But the wallet card has two key attributes on it. One is it says, I consent to appropriate treatment. And that means that if you, for instance, in the example that uh, Brian Klepper often shows, there was a woman who got a, a ton of charges in an ER, including for a pregnancy test, but she was postmenopause, so they, it was not appropriate. And in fact, I think actually she said she wasn't pregnant. So, you know, it was not appropriate on many levels. So that should be paid at zero if you put the word appropriate in. The even more appropriate word is the word reasonable, because if you put reasonable in before charges, as we do on the card, I consent to appropriate treatment and agree to pay reasonable charges. Now, this is, this is the, the key thing that in conjunction with insurance is not, uh, not to exceed two times the Medicare rate. So that's what the card says. And also, Stacy, we are giving away these cards free. Yes. And we will post that on the Relentless Health Value podcast in this episode's show notes. All of this will be there. And then the fact that they take it and accept it and don't cross it out means that contractually speaking, you probably will be found to have a meeting of the minds. But we'll get into that in a sec. I just want to do the, the basics here. Here's the cool thing, Al. It wasn't just me, actually, who got to test drive or try out or be the, the pilot for the wallet card defense strategy. A week or so after I had my experience in the ER, Rachel Miner from Thrive Benefits had the misfortune to take a trip to the ER with her son, Jackson. So let's hear from Rachel now. So let's talk with Rachel Miner, who is the founder of Thrive Benefits in Charlotte, North Carolina. You and I both actually got Quizify's wallet card and what the wallet card does, as we've just talked about earlier with Al, it's to be used in an emergency room setting and it has language to put into the financial agreement that you get shoved in your face when you walk into the emergency room, basically promising to pay the hospital whatever the hospital decides to charge you. You walk in the door of the emergency room with Jackson and what happens now? Yeah, well, so the funny thing is I didn't even get the wallet card. I honestly, the power of social media, I saw it on LinkedIn that Elle was talking about it. I was at a dance convention. My daughter had just done eight hours of dancing and my son Jackson, we were playing at the pool. Long story short, him and another little boy, Tyler, ended up colliding heads. Jackson had a giant gash on his head. He's bleeding, I'm running. I'm in the emergency room. I literally have a beach towel on his head and there's blood all over it. You know, all too familiar scene where you're at the emergency room. They're asking you to electronically sign multiple different things. And the triage nurse is, you know, kind of rushing me through it. Don't worry. This one's just for privacy. Don't worry. This one's just our financial statement. And when we came to the financial statement, I asked her to print it out. She thought it was kind of weird, but I explained that I was going to make some revisions on it. And so on it, I wrote that I wasn't going to pay more than 200% of the Medicare allowable. She kind of laughed at me and was like, well, yeah, you know, good luck fighting the hospital system. And I was like, well, I'm signing a contract and I'm stating exactly what I'm willing to pay. So it's not giving you permission to charge me, you know, 490% of Medicare. It's what I'm willing to pay. And 
she was like, man, that, that's kind of smart. Like I've been here for, you know, 15 years. I've never seen anybody do that. I had to explain to her and educate her on my rights as a patient to do that. Considering that I think it's the third biggest group that gets their wages garnished by hospitals is people who work in the hospital. It might not be a bad thing for people who work in a hospital to actually know. Totally. It's funny because my experience was pretty much the same. I I went to the hospital because my husband thought he was having a heart attack. It turned out, luckily, that it was just a panic attack. But, you know, it is pretty scary in that moment. And we walked in, same idea, get all these forms shoved in your face. And I did pretty much the same thing. We got to the financial statement and I asked for a paper copy. It's interesting though, the person, the billing clerk who I was talking to could not have been less intrigued by what I was up to. (laughs) She was just incredibly annoyed that I was wasting her time. You know, she kind of stomped off, got the form, came back, sat there tapping her toe while I very diligently crossed a couple of things out and added the two times Medicare to the contract, which I then handed back. I I took a picture, though. Did you take a picture? I did take a picture, yeah. Yeah, because I was thinking, how will anybody know that I've done this? Because I'm sure it's going to get lost in a vast sea of documentation. And it's not like the hospital is going to have any incentive to find it. Absolutely. Was there anything else, any other advice that you might want to give? I've found this to be very important for my clients in North Carolina that have reference-based pricing, primarily because our state had originally announced that they were going to be doing reference-based pricing for all their state employees. And Dale Fowell, who's the state treasurer, got a lot of slack for it, and the hospital system banded against him, along with Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina. And basically now our hospitals are empowered to kind of charge whatever they want which on average in Charlotte, it's about 390% of Medicare. So I guess knowing that you have power in what you're willing to accept is certainly something that I encourage all of my employer groups to know. They kind of drank the Kool-Aid all these years that insurance is this unlimited pool of money that you can continually pull from And unfortunately, employer groups have really suffered at the hand of double-digit increases, which there's no long-term sustainability in that. So employer groups really don't have a choice except to take matters into their own hands. I interviewed Dale Falwell. He's episode 249 and goes through the kind of sordid tale of what he went through in, in North Carolina. If anyone's interested, it is riveting, actually. I don't mean that in a... Positive way. Positive way. I mean, (laughs) it's just, it really shows what the imbalance of power is between hospital systems who have taken advantage of some of the precedents in the law, but also of patients. Let's just be clear. You get a patient who is in the hospital, that means they're sick. At that most vulnerable moment, whether they're in the emergency room or, or an inpatient, is when we're up to trickiness to try to figure out how to maximize profit. Yes. Let's get back to the wallet card. If we're talking about employers and surprise billing that happens in the emergency room specifically, how do you advise your employers? Should they be advocating the use of the wallet card for their employees? I always 
I encourage them to do anything to help employees, whether that be a digital card. So if they have to take a picture of it or if there's a digital copy of the card, any way that they can remind themselves in an emergency situation, we're encouraging them to do. I use a lot of advocacy apps and technology in order to help employees and remind them that they have choices. If uh, there's an employer that's listening and, you know, we'll have a link certainly to the Quizify wallet card in the show notes, what would you advise an employer to do with that card? Like, how would you advise them to get it out to their employees? I guess it depends on what their employee demographics are. What we've found to be most successful is putting it into like a wallet app on a phone. Which is good because that's what Al did. He put it in a yeah. wallet card. Maybe he talked to you ahead of time. <laughs> I think that that's the handiest, easiest way. We're such a technologically advanced business world that even, you know, truck drivers nowadays have smartphones. I think putting it on your phone where you can easily access it is the most valuable way. So great. And then you just send out an email. Here's the link. Do this. Yeah, we put it either on a benefit enrollment portal or we'll have it in an app that we use in addition to Quizify. Rachel Miner, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So back to my conversation with Al Lewis. Let's take this conversation back to the very beginning now, Al. I feel like a radio DJ about ready to introduce an oldie show or something. But you've said more than once that your journey to create the wallet card and the strategy began with inspiration from when you, I think, were on a panel with David Contorno from ePowered Benefits and also with Marilyn Bartlett from Montana. Let's listen to David explain that moment. David, maybe you can tell the story of when the inspiration that you and Marilyn gave Al transpired. I think part of the epiphany came when I said in front of him, I think it was in front of a group, I said, wait a second, guys. When we refer to surprise billings in the vernacular of the country, we're typically referring to an employee or a patient that has a networked plan and through no choice of their own, finds themselves with an out-of-network provider. So an emergency room being a common example or an anesthesiologist or a radiologist. But my point was, and I think this is where Al and I started to discuss this point even further that led to this, was isn't every single bill in healthcare a surprise bill? Because nobody knows what it's going to be, even the provider of services, until after they're rendered. I mean, literally every bill in healthcare is a surprise. So what we're really talking about is not a surprise bill, but a surprise additional responsibility in what wasn't covered by your health plan. And I think it's important to really address that. And of course, the health systems and the providers who choose to be out of network, they do this with intent. They're done at ERs and anesthesiologists because you have no choice over the matter. And so Al and I started to talk about this, and this was where Marilyn Bartlett's expertise came in. If you look at the federal law, EMTALA, which is what requires emergency departments to take all patients regardless of financial ability, under that premise, there's actually two different consents that need to be signed or are asked to be signed when you go into the emergency department. One is a consent to treat, and one is a consent to pay or a financial responsibility consent. Because of that federal law, you do not need to sign that financial consent. You only need to sign the consent to treat. And so we educate our members and the public in general, sign that consent to treat, you have to. 
but don't sign the financial consent. Don't obligate yourself financially to some unknown amount. And it makes it a lot harder for us to fight on the back end when you willingly sign to it. So then we started to say, well, what could we do besides not signing that? What could we do more proactively? And there's a a legal standard called the battlefield consent. And it basically says that when there's a gun to your head, there are certain things you cannot consent to legally. And so if you capitalize upon that and then you add in this wallet card that Al created, which was brilliant, that basically says, this is what I consent to financially. And you show that or can document that you showed that, then it gives us a huge amount of leverage. Because when we talk about fighting these surprise bills or balance bills after the fact, we really have to go back to the provider and negotiate it down. We have to beg them or convince them or show them that this was egregious or it's way above cost or it's way above what they charge in other areas, whatever lever we can get on. But to have something that said, but something was presented then that said, this is what they'll pay. And it was done pre-service and you still treated them. It gives us a tremendous amount of leverage in that post-claim negotiation. And when you say when we go back to negotiate the bill, I'm assuming that the we in there is employers. Yes. Or the consultants managing the plans on behalf of the employers, or sometimes it's some of the vendors within the employer plans, like the repricers or the TPA or the advocacy team. But yes, somebody on behalf of both the employer and the patient who's going in to negotiate those bills. Should they be handing these wallet cards or this information out to their employees or like really proactively? Is it worth it? Absolutely, it's worth it. The more leverage you can get, the better it can be. But let's talk about the concept of negotiating versus not negotiating. The reality is, is that when you slap in a PPO network, which most employers have, most of the claims are not generating a surprise bill because the negotiating, quote unquote, has already been done. That's really what the PPO network is, right? Is it sets the pricing of care Does it stink that we employers have to sort of, quote unquote, get into the healthcare business to to make this sustainable? I guess it stinks, but they're already in many other businesses outside of their core business, right? They might need trucks to move their their stuff around, even though they make the the widgets, but they're in the logistics business too, because they have to get those widgets out to their customers or the wholesalers. And so really every business has multiple business units, even if it's not directly tied to the core business. And this is one of the things that should be looked at as a business unit. And when you start to look at it as that, you say, wait a second, we absolutely should be negotiating this on our behalf. Who better and more aligned and more incentivized to negotiate this as good as possible for us and our employees than us? We have the most alignment in that. So if an employee goes into an ER, like I'm your average employer, And an employee winds up in an ER and they get a bill for some amount that's 20 times Medicare. There's cost shifting that's involved here. So the employee's paying for it. If I'm an employer, why do I care? Honestly, like I I got a lot of things that I'm doing. Why why should I care that one of my employees just got a $10,000 bill? Because they're going to view that as a failing of the health plan and therefore they're going to feel less protected and cared for by their employer. Therefore, they're going to become a less efficient employee and maybe look for another job. That was succinct. How do I go about talking about this with my employees? Is there any best practices here? Because, you know, obviously, if I'm an employer, I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't know, maybe if I bring up this wallet card, the employees are going to think that their coverage isn't good, that we're worried about this or something. In your experience, having done this as many times as you've done this, is there certain, you know, pillars or must-haves or key points that you want to make if you're explaining this to an employee population? Yeah, I mean, I think what the employees need to understand is that you need to educate them on why they're feeling the pain points they're feeling. And the pain points they're feeling predominantly are increased money coming out of their pocket underneath the health plan that they now have a lot of money coming out of their paycheck for. 
And if you get them to understand the root cause of that, and at the end of the day, the root cause is the billing practices of the healthcare system, you can actually engender not just tolerance, but support of this among the employee population. You can get them to want to be part of the solution when you start to educate them on how hospitals make money, how insurance companies make money. The average person will start to see, holy mackerel, I've been relying upon these entities who benefit as my health goes down and my cost of care goes up. And I keep wondering why my health keeps going down and my cost of care keeps going up. And then they become part of wanting to change those incentives. I think that's really the key. And really, we tee it up simply as this. This is not something your employer is doing to you. This is something your employer is doing for you. Maybe required listening should be episode 186 of Relentless Health Value featuring David Contorno talking about the only way to pay less for health care is to pay less for health care. That's right. <laughs> David Contorno, thank you so much. Thank you, Stacey. So here's what I learned from David, and, and it was partly in the moment, but partly just, you know, there, there are not a lot of people that I, I listen to and actually acknowledge that I'm actually learning something from, you know, but David and Marilyn are two of those people. They taught me about, I had never heard, I mean, I just cocktail party reference-based pricing, but they were the ones who taught me that you could do that. It had to be something that was, and, and you heard what David just said, it's generally something that is contractual when you use it in an elective situation. There can be some conflict and whatnot. And Marilyn, of course, had huge conflict when she did it in Montana. But those two gave me the inspiration. Maybe you could apply this to the ER. The other half of that inspiration was Marty McCary, who in his, in his book described so-called battlefield consents and that you did not have to sign what the ER put in front of you. Now, in his book, he just said, you know, don't sign or say, I just agree to treatment. I use the Reese cup as an analogy. If you put Marty McCary's insight about battlefield consents as the peanut butter, and then Marilyn and David's work on reference-based pricing together, you get this wallet card. Now, the moment of truth. Rachel, myself, I'm sure many, many others have gone to the ER. We have very meticulously edited the language on the financial consent form, and we have taken a picture of it, which is really important. Now we get our bill. What's going to happen now? Because I seriously doubt that the hospitals is picking through and, and, and checking language on anything prior to sending the bill. So I wanted to ask an attorney who is deals with this kind of thing, what the chances of success might be. Cue Doug Aldean. Are you ready to listen to what Doug Aldean has to say about the chances of success with the surprise billing strategy, Al? Absolutely. He's a very knowledgeable guy. I'll listen closely. Next up, I'd like to welcome Doug Aldean, who is an attorney in Austin, Texas. Doug works with self-funded employers across the country. He does a lot of out-of-network negotiations with hospitals. Thank you for inviting me, Stacey. I appreciate it very much. You know, obviously, Surprise Bill is effectively out-of-network because what's going on in that moment is that patient goes to emergency room, sees some kind of out-of-network provider, and that's how the balance bill actually happens because the out-of-network provider is just charging whatever they want. So That's correct. The one thing that I would wonder, there seems to be a lot of court activity amongst certain emergency rooms where they are seemingly charging egregious prices and it goes to court and the patient seems to be on the hook for whatever the hospital decided to charge. 
how is, you know, writing on the contract, I'll pay you two times Medicare, different, you know, from a reasonable charge perspective from the hospital charging whatever they want and the court upholding that? You know, the devil is always in the details, Stacey. So in many cases, I mean, think about this. I mean, if, if you're a single parent, you've got a number of obligations and a lot of times people don't show up. And so in many instances, you're going to have default judgments, which are exceedingly difficult because, I mean, you're, you're behind the eight ball already. But notwithstanding that, if, if you don't have if you actually show up and there's actually there's a trial and a judge is placed in a position where he needs to determine what a fair level of reimbursement is. There's not a contract in place. I mean, so if if someone has signed the admission form, okay, I mean, there's an argument to be made that it was an emergency situation. I wasn't in in my right mind. I mean, capacity, the ability to assent. There wasn't a meeting of the minds is an argument you can make. However, if you implement, you know, the strategy that Alice suggested, which is, you know, you write on the form, we're going to agree to accept or we're going to pay 200% of Medicare or two times what Medicare would reimburse for this particular procedure. You've put yourself in a better position because there is an agreement in place and the court is the court is bound to look at what's the reasonable value of those services as opposed to signing it up front, in which case, I mean, it, it could be a hit or miss in terms of how that case is going to shake out. And you have to show up for court. I'm understanding. And you got to show up for court. Exactly. There is an attorney who represented physician group practices, including those who work at out-of-network hospitals. And one of the things that she articulated, and this is in the New York Times article about this exact same topic, she said it won't be a valid contract unless both parties sign it. She said it's a hard argument to make that if a patient changes anything unilaterally, that it's valid at all. What would you say to that? I think it puts you in a better position. If you are smart enough to implement that strategy, and you simply cross it off and said, I agree to pay 200% of Medicare, you're in a better position by default crossing it off, signing it and not having a contract because you're only the judge is only going to be able to determine what that reasonable value of services is. And it's not going to be the charge master rate. Despite the fact that the contract is unilateral, mm-hmm. by doing the crossing off effectively, even if you sign it, what you're not doing is agreeing to the original terms. And that's that, correct. That puts you in a better spot. That's correct. 100%. I guess there's also a difference between being charged the right amount, because likely what's going to wind up happening is that despite the f- what the patient has done, the hospital is probably going to charge what the hospital is going to charge, right? It, I mean, I think it's probably a stretch mm-hmm. to assume that before the hospital billing department shoots out the bill to the patient that they, like, you know, check the <laughs> that the agreement was was signed and check if there's any language on it or whatnot. You know, they're probably just going to shoot out the bill. So what's going to happen then? All right. So a patient gets a bill that's a, effectively mm-hmm. a surprise bill. And I learned the other day, Doug, how to go on online and check what the Medicare charges are. So that could be done. The patient does that, decides that it's 40 times Medicare, calls up the hospital. What happens now? In that situation, did the patient scratch off and sign we agree to pay 200% of Medicare yep. or do they sign? Okay. Well, you're, you're going to negotiate with somebody at the hospital and you're going to have a copy of your admission form. And you say, I only agreed to pay 200% of Medicare. I didn't agree to pay this. Now, in reality, many of those people only have authority inside those facilities to negotiate up to a certain level, 10%, 20%, whatever that may be. So you're going to have to find 
somebody who's got the ability to look at what you signed and have the authority to make a decision. You're right. We're only going to accept X in terms of you know what your what your obligation is to pay. So that that's that's where the job is right there. So the job is phoning, maybe even making a personal visit to the facility. I'd, I'd argue make a f- personal visit because that's what's going to get it done, and having that conversation with somebody inside that facility. And who do you ask for? Like, who is that person? Is it the manager? You know, so it's the classic. Let me talk to your manager. You know, there's a lot of different terms for it, but I would argue, you know, director of revenue cycle management. So you call up the hospital and you say, you know, I received a bill here and I need to talk to the director of revenue cycle management. All right, let's just say, or you go there and you speak with said individual. So here we are now and you're talking to, I'm the patient and I'm talking to the director of revenue cycle management. What do I say? You're going to say, here's the form that I have or that I signed that I agreed to pay 200% of Medicare, despite your position that I full charges because you don't accept they don't expect when a hospital sets its charge master rate, they don't expect they're going to be reimbursed 100% of that. Okay. They realize that's just a starting point. And again, that's different topic for a different day, but you're going to have your paper and you're also going to have, if you're lucky enough, you're going to have an itemized bill, which you can get from your TPA. You're going to have your EOB. Okay. Explanation of benefits. And you're going to have Hopefully, from the TPA, your itemized bill, which is going to show you all the CPT codes that encompass that episode of care. And you're going to say, you know, here's what these codes provide. Here's what, you know, your Medicare reimbursement rate is based upon whatever information they have on their website. You're going to add it up and say, that's the number that I'm going to pay you. And at that juncture, it's going to be up to the revenue cycle director to say, yeah, this is just not worth it. Or they say, tough luck, I'm going to pursue this. So that person that you're meeting with hopefully is going to have the authority and ability to make a decision right then and there about how this bill is going to get paid. And should the hospital choose to continue to push, then basically we're going to wind up in court and we just, we already talked about that, what might happen at that juncture. Correct. Effectively, what I'm understanding is that it definitely would be a commitment on the patient side, maybe a matter of principle even, to see it through because it would take a ton of time. Ton of time. And it is, you know, I'll use my Blues Brothers phrase, you're on a mission from God. I mean, so it is a ton of time. We started this conversation talking about a single mother, you know, with three kids and two jobs. This is in the moment. It doesn't take any time at all to write that on the form. But in order to actually see it actuated, it may not be feasible for somebody who doesn't have enough time and maybe experience and willpower. You're going to have to devote a certain level of initiative to get this accomplished. However, you think about it, I mean, if you're looking at an $88,000 bill that you know you can get resolved for $2,000, I mean, that's a lot of incentive to budget and schedule accordingly. Because, I mean, you can ultimately, you know, you can stave off the hospital for a while. I mean, because they're not going to really start the billing and collection practices, the robocalling, the letters. I mean, it's going to be several months down the road. But if you're on top of it, I mean, I think you, you can be ahead of the curve. And by being ahead of the curve, that means like the second that you get that bill, you stomp into that hospital. That's exactly right. I mean, you get your itemized bill, you figure out what a fair level of reimbursement is based upon 200% of Medicare. So as opposed to waiting for the tidal wave to come, you show some initiative, get on top of it and resolve it before it reaches the, you know, the crescendo, which is, you know, 
credit impairments, pending, the robocalls, small claims letters from lawyers, that kind of stuff. What if we are not necessarily dealing with the hospital, which happens a bunch? You know, maybe we're dealing with Team Health or MCARE or some random, you know, as they call them, ologists, anesthesiologists mm-hmm. or pathologists who suddenly sends a bill after an ER visit. The same rules apply? Same rules apply. And I think you have a better chance at getting something worked out with those individuals, because it's going to be a much more smaller, nimble organization. So you're not going to be dealing with uh, Harvard Pilgrim in Boston, a massive organization with tons of bureaucracy. Um, you're going to be dealing with a particular anesthesiologist or an anesthesiology group, which is a fraction of the size. It is going to have, you know, maybe just one person doing the billing. So you're going to have a much greater chance at dealing with it sooner rather than later. Doug, is there anything that I neglected to ask you, which you think is super important to amend this conversation with? It's not as daunting as people think. You know, you hate to say it's it's like used car sales, but I mean, it kind of is a little bit. You know, the minute, I mean, the minute folks have that type of economic incentive to change things for the better, I mean, Katie, bar the door. <laughs> Thanks so much, Doug. Thank you, Stacy. Stacy, the general rule and that he's describing is that the more you do in advance, the better. Now you get to the point, what happens when you get the bill? So when these folks come a-calling, if they don't actually charge you two times Medicare and they do charge you for a whole bunch of stuff that they shouldn't have charged you for, you come to me, I'm not an attorney and I'm not going to charge you because I don't want to pretend, I don't want to you know, be a pretend lawyer. I mean, I am a lawyer, but not practicing. But I would say to them, look, Number one, there's offer and acceptance. But number two, let's assume that you take this to court. If you take this to court, Mr. Hospital, and you lose, well, I'm going to be putting this all over the blogosphere and in the local newspaper. And suddenly you're going to have precedent and you're going to have knowledge and a whole bunch of people are going to come in and crash your entire pricing structure. Now, why do I think you're going to lose, Mr. Hospital? Well, that's why we say two times Medicare, which Doug, if you just noticed, said is a very reasonable price on that, and not one times Medicare. Because one times Medicare, Mr. Hospital, you might win the case because you, you say it's not fair for somebody to walk in off the street and demand our best price that we give to our biggest customer. And at some level, we lose money on those customers, but we cover our overhead. We could not do that on a general basis. It's not reasonable. I would not want to be an attorney defending somebody who wrote one times Medicare. So two times Medicare, we feel as the, I, I feel as a number that you could do, you could use to both pay a reasonable amount and be so likely to win the case that the hospital would cave before they took you to court. If I'm an employer, Al, so there's a lot of employers that listen to this, this show, you know, as well as their consultants and brokers and other providers, service providers. What should I be doing with these wallet cards? I mean, should I be distributing them to all of my employees, telling everybody to tape it on the back of their cards or getting my TPA to actually print it on cards? Like, what's your best advice there? The short answer is yes. Uh, the longer answer is it's kind of out of context. You just write to all your employees and say, oh, by the way, put this on your card. And that's where Quizify comes in. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm giving away the cards, you know, I'm giving away the advice. Well, newsflash, there is a business model for Quizify here, which is that as part of an employee education program, we have quizzes that go with these surprise bills. And at the end of the quiz, 
you would click through and get all the surprise inform- uh, the surprise bill. We call it the prevent consent. You then create a context where the employees then understand exactly why they're doing this. And they understand that, yeah, as soon as I get it, I got to tape it. And oh, by the way, you can also download the language directly into your Apple wallet. Yeah. And as Rachel Miner said, that's one of her go-to strategies for employees of, of all kinds is to stick something in a wallet card because no matter where people are, they tend to have their phones. So Al, as you mentioned earlier, if somebody wants to find out more information about Quizify, they can definitely go to quizify.com. The consent form is on quizify.com. We will also put links to both of those in the show notes. Thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Well, you're quite welcome. And thanks as always for having me on. It's a great podcast. And remember I said I didn't normally listen to things and learn from them because it was a sign of weakness. I usually do listen to your podcasts. Oh, well, that is quite an honor. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.